0: Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This episode is the Buzzkill episode on nuclear fusion. Last episode we got very cynical about the oft-stated claim that energy from nuclear fusion is in any sense limitless, and now we're going to get super cynical about some of the other things that people say about fusion. You can apply a similar sceptical eye to the claims that nuclear fusion is clean. It's perfectly true that fossil fuels produce carbon dioxide which leads to global warming, and fission power plants produce radioactive chunks from the reactions that power them. By comparison, the direct fusion reaction, deuterium plus tritium, produces a fast neutron and helium. So it's true that fusion is clean in the sense that none of the direct products are technically radioactive, although, of course, the tritium fuel is radioactive, as is the fast neutron, in a sense. But this clean mantra conceals the fact that those neutrons bombard the reactor casing. Those highly energetic neutrons are like few other things we see on Earth. You can't slow them down or control their path with electrical magnetic fields because they carry no charge. They crash into things and ionise them. They knock atoms out of their positions in the lattice. They can generate hydrogen and helium when they crash into the walls of reactor vessels, leading to pockets of gas that can then explode. The molten lithium in the breeder blanket can catch fire or explode, leading to damage to the reactor vessel. And this bombardment results in the material becoming radioactive. Eventually, as the material degrades under this neutron bombardment, it will need to be removed, and you end up with tons of heavy radioactive casing. It's less radioactive than enriched uranium, or the products of direct nuclear fission, but you still need to dispose of it somewhere, and there's a far greater volume of waste being produced by the fusion power plant. It may be less dangerous, in other words, but calling it clean is a bit of a stretch. Jaspie, who we referenced in the last episode, points out, Material scientists are attempting to develop low-activation structural alloys that would allow discarded reactor materials to qualify as low-level radioactive waste that could be disposed of by shallow land burial. But even if such alloys do become available on a commercial scale, very few municipalities or counties are likely to accept landfills for low-level radioactive waste. This means that there are only one or two repositories for such waste in every nation, which means that radioactive waste from fusion reactors would have to be transported across the country at great expense, and safeguarded from diversion, just as in fission reactors. End quote. Let's also note that making these alloys, the kind that can stand up pretty well to intense, energetic neutron bombardment, is proving to be a very difficult task. These neutrons are travelling at significant fractions of the speed of light, and short of fusion reactions, it's extremely difficult to get neutrons of this energy to test your materials with. So it's not just a matter of using some extremely clever tungsten alloy, If your material is going to be badly damaged by the neutron flux, then you'll need to replace it more often. That's more downtime for the reactor, more expense to replace the shielding, and more nuclear waste to dispose of. And it's very difficult to know how materials will behave at all, because we simply can't create these kind of neutrons in ordinary processes for testing. Another advantage that's often touted for nuclear fusion is that it's safe. And it's very true that you can't have a Chernobyl-style disaster with a nuclear fusion reactor. A fission reaction is essentially an out-of-control chain reaction that's damped down and harnessed. The failure mode can easily be explosive, spreading radioactive debris over a large area. Meanwhile, the fuel is partially enriched uranium. With a little more enrichment, fuel-grade uranium becomes weapons-grade uranium, which is why there is a great deal of controversy over countries like Iran pursuing nuclear power for peaceful purposes. Meanwhile, if a fusion power plant stops working, the worst that happens is that the plant, and possibly the immediately surrounding area, will be damaged. There's no way to have a runaway fusion reaction. As soon as plasma confinement breaks, fusion will stop. In fact, this happens regularly in tokamaks, as we discussed, with disruptions, so there's really not that much of a reason to expect that a failure for a nuclear fusion plant would look that much different to a disruption in a tokamak, which happens all the time and doesn't even destroy the system itself. As the last few episodes will have convinced you, if nothing else, attaining the conditions for fusion to work and produce energy is extremely difficult. Attaining the conditions for fission to work and produce an explosive amount of energy pretty much just involves letting a big lump of enriched uranium sit there. There are some other worst-case scenario safety risks. Maybe the vacuum fails and the superconducting magnets or the vessel explodes. This will destroy the power plant, but it doesn't have the potential to spread dangerous fallout over a very large area in the same way as a nuclear fission power plant can. However, Jasby once again notes that not all is rosy in terms of nuclear proliferation for fusion power plants either. The concern that bad actors might pretend to be enriching uranium for peaceful purposes, but actually making bomb materials, plagues fission reactors. But in fusion reactors, the fast neutrons in turn present a problem. If you throw uranium-238 or uranium oxide, both of which are much easier to get than enriched uranium, into a fusion reactor's fast neutrons, these things will produce plutonium-239. So effectively, the neutrons that are produced as a by-product of fusion provide a way of turning these somewhat safe uranium materials into very radioactive materials. JASPY calculates that even a small 50 megawatt test deuterium reactor could produce up to 3 kilograms of plutonium-239 a year. Plutonium-239 is used even more widely in nuclear weapons than highly enriched uranium because it's easier to get a critical mass for bomb construction. It's obviously difficult to get precise figures that will tell you how much plutonium-239 you need for a bomb, and my Google search history is slightly more incriminating after writing this script. However, suffice it to say that the 3 kilograms of plutonium-239 that a small test deuterium reactor might be able to produce would be easily enough for one Hiroshima-style bomb, so nuclear fusion power plants may need to be inspected in a similar way to fission plants to ensure that they're not secretly being used for weapons. Waste disposal is a huge part of why nuclear fission reactors are so expensive to run. In fact, according to Lazard, nuclear fission power plants are already more expensive than natural gas, coal, wind, biomass, geothermal, solar thermal and solar photovoltaic plants. In recent years, fission power plants like the Hinkley Point C power plant in the UK have been over budget and have taken far longer to construct than was initially planned. One can argue that nuclear fission hasn't received the research and development funding that it deserves, but it's more than 50 years since the first power plants opened with a promise that they would be too cheap to meet it. You look at the economics of nuclear fission and realise that most of the disadvantages, which are due to things like the overhead of construction costs for the plant, the requirement of expensive specialist waste disposal, well these might be just as bad for nuclear fusion. Fusion advocates reassure you that over time, all technologies get cheaper, more reliable, the kinks get ironed out, you can make them run at a greater profit, yet this hasn't been the case for nuclear fission in practice over these many years. The final point I'll make when it comes to practical, economically viable fusion is that for anyone to actually invest in it, it has to compete with what already exists. It's true that fusion has some advantages over solar power. You can put a fusion reactor in places where the sun don't shine, it takes up less space, and you don't need energy storage systems to overcome the intermittency problem. But if a fusion reactor costs 10 times more than the equivalent in solar panels, at some point it becomes cheaper just to go with solar and suck up the cost of storing the energy, or transmitting it across long distances where it's most needed, or buying the land, or even just building large amounts of redundant solar panels all over the place. This is before we even get to the fact that it's possible to build yourself a fairly small solar farm if you want, In fact, you could even just put solar panels on your roof for a few thousand pounds. But anyone who wants to get into the nuclear fusion energy business better be capable of throwing down billions of dollars in the initial overhead before they can even begin to generate energy and realise a profit. Currently, in San Luis Obispo, the Topaz solar farm is generating 500 megawatts of power. Because of the winter, and because of the nighttime, its capacity factor is around 23%. In other words, divided over a full year, It generates 125 megawatts of power on average, so you'd need four of these operating to generate the equivalent of a 500 megawatt power plant that's always on. That costs two billion dollars. Eta, which is a demonstration power plant that will produce 500 megawatts of power for a few minutes at a time, if it works, has already cost 20 billion and the costs are only set to rise. So effectively you could build four Topaz solar power plants for less than half the price of Eta and still have plenty of cash to spend on storage and transmission solutions. In other words, on the scales we're talking about, solar plus storage is probably already cheaper than the optimistic cost estimates for fusion. And of course, fusion has to compete with what the cost of electricity is going to be when fusion works, not the cost of electricity now. Solar panel prices have been falling precipitously. In the developing world, where labour costs are cheaper and the sunshine more abundant than even in California, solar just keeps getting better as an option. There's a new plant in Kamuthi, in India, with a capacity of 650 megawatts, that only costs 700 million to build. The Longyangsha Dam Solar Park in China has a capacity of 850 megawatts, and cost around a billion to build. In a decade, these prices could come down even further, while Fusion will still be trying to work. Now these plants have already been constructed. Meanwhile, consider a plan for Korea's own version of demo power plant from Fusion. The head of Korea's ITER agency was interviewed and it said, they asked him, can you provide an estimate of K-Demo's construction cost? How does it compare to the 13 billion euros spent on ETA? His response was, of course, at present it is premature to estimate K-Demo's cost. The final note I have to say on the subject of purely buzzkill economic practicality involves a little back-of-the-envelope calculation that I found in an eye-opening blog post at Matter2Energy by the renewable energy blogger Maui Markowitz. Obviously, like everything above, this can all depend on your assumptions. Maybe solar stops getting cheaper. Maybe someone finds a way to make a smaller fusion power plant. Maybe storing energy from solar, over the long term, ends up being far more expensive or environmentally damaging than fusion power. Maori clearly has opinions about fusion, so do take them with a grain of salt. Nevertheless, the logic is compelling, and his style is pretty inimitable, so I'll quote. Quote. There are three groups involved in building a power plant and the design has to make all three happy. First and most obvious is the power company. They really don't care about the technology. Their only concern is a number called the levelized cost of electricity. Levelized cost of electricity basically tells you how much you have to charge your customers for the power generated by the plant. That better be lower than the customers can get elsewhere or there's no point in building the plant and you won't run a profit. Then there's the engineering firm that actually builds the plant. They don't give a crap about the technology or the levelized cost. The only thing they care about is making a profit building it. Is this a machine that lots of people have built before and is well understood? No problem. A new concept that no one really knows much about, where there could be plenty of issues along the way? You're going to have to pay them a lot more. And finally, and most important, are the bankers. They don't give a crap about the power companies' profitability or the construction companies. They only care about their profitability. And that is 100% based on the interest they can charge the power company, and the risk that the company will default. Right now, the nuclear power industry is dying a horrible death everywhere in the Western world. That's because the bankers won't pay for it. There is no other reason. It's not because of tree huggers, or a global conspiracy of anti-nuclear government agencies. It's the bankers. You can't blame them. A fission reactor at an existing site takes four to six years to build during which time you make no money. Reactors at new sites generally take 10 to 12 years. Meanwhile, wind turbines go from the first sketch on a napkin to on the grid in 18 months or less. Consider the decision that a banker has to make when presented with two pitches. Pitch one. I want 10 million for 18 months. After that, I'll pay you 6%. Or two. I want 25 billion for 5 years. After that, I'll pay you 8%. Option 1 gets the money every time. Not in theory, this is clearly what is happening in the real world. You can argue the technical superiority of fission over wind all you want. In fact, it's pretty much all true. It is a fact that wind can't be dispatched whenever you want, while nuclear has a capacity factor around 90% and provides all sorts of baseload. It is a fact that nuclear takes up less land than the equivalent in windmills. Add any of the other advantages you've heard, they're probably true too. Here's the problem with all of those arguments. The bank doesn't give a crap. So the places that are building nukes are inevitably where the local government is willing to put up the money, generally interest-free. We have new reactors in Korea and China, and everyone else is doing basically nothing. Actually, in the US, all the money is backed by the government, and the companies have ignored it anyway. It's just too expensive and economically risky. So after that, Maori goes on to fly the flag for renewables by pointing out there's a reason that the prices for solar and wind are falling. There's a reason they will fall below the prices even for coal, oil and natural gas plants that have had decades of being the world's dominant energy supply to refine and cost cut and corner the market. Not only do you not have to worry about supplying them with fuel that needs to be dug out of the ground, refined and transported, but solar and wind essentially produce electricity directly. Solar panels produce a voltage when photons hit them wind directly spins the turbine that generates electricity. But nuclear power plants and fossil fuel power plants generate heat, and that heat is converted into electricity by a heat engine, with all the thermodynamic inefficiencies and complex parts that that implies. Heat engine power plants are often more complicated than a wind turbine or a solar panel that can more or less be a self-contained unit that generates power. That's why you can't stick a small fossil fuel power plant on your roof. For that reason, they're often more expensive. Indeed, Mary argues that if you look at a nuclear fission power plant, the reactor which generates heat from the f- nuclear fission is around a third of the capital cost. The other two-thirds is for the heat-to-electricity side of the equation, which is independent of what actually generates the heat. So even if the fusion reaction side of the equation was effectively free, it still might end up being more expensive than a fleet of w- wind turbines, in the same way as it might be more expensive to have a generator in your house than to have your own wind turbine or your own solar panel, depending on how often you use it and so on. All of this is not to say that fusion won't ever work, or ever form part of the energy mix. I think the really predominant argument for fusion has to be that it can provide this constant baseload of power for an extremely long time, if it gets working, and that the fuel that it relies on won't run out. But I will leave you with this rather damning back-of-the-envelope calculation that shows that however scientifically and theoretically valuable fusion might be to the energy grid, it is not going to be beloved of economists. So the Eta Tokamak is a big beast, and it's built in a room with a concrete floor. Now the cost of that concrete floor came in at around 15 cents per watt of power that it generates. Not the lithium, not the superconducting magnets, not the reactor vessel, but the actual floor of the building that contains it. Meanwhile, according to Clean Technica, the cost of a solar panel today is 40 cents per watt. By 2040, around the time that fusion scientists hope to have proven that ETA can generate power in deuterium-tritium reactions for 15 minutes at a time, industry ex- experts project that it could be 21 cents per watt to buy a solar panel. So yes, there are installation costs for solar. Yes, there are intermittency and storage problems for renewables. Yes, you need to transmit power from places with a lot of sunshine. But if you're looking at the situation where the price of just the concrete floor for your insanely complicated fusion reactor might be comparable to the price of the heart of the power plant for your solar panels, it's hard to imagine that the problems associated with large-scale solar will be more expensive to solve than the problems associated with large-scale fusion power plants. Indeed, as far back as 2006, perhaps cynical after years of waiting for fusion, an old scientist called William Parkins published his estimate in a science magazine article entitled Fusion Power. Will it ever come? He wrote, Scaling of the construction costs from the Bechtel estimates suggests a total plant cost on the order of $15 billion, or 15,000 per kilowatt equivalent of plant rating. At a plant factor of 0.8 and total annual charges of 17% against the capital investment, these capital charges alone would contribute 36 cents to the cost of generating each kilowatt hour. This is far outside the competitive price range. So just to point out what he's saying here, he's saying that if you take into account how long the plant will live, how often it will generate electricity and how much electricity it will totally generate, then you're effectively saying that each kilowatt hour will cost 36 cents just from the price of building the plant, not running it, not getting the tritium or deuterium, just building the plant. Given that the current levelized cost of electricity will already allow you to generate according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, onshore wind at 5.5 cents per kilowatt hour, and solar photovoltaics for 7 cents per kilowatt hour. I mean, if his estimate proves to be even remotely accurate, then the construction costs alone mean that Fusion will struggle to compete with renewables. If the thing is already seven times more expensive than onshore wind, then I just struggle to see how storage for onshore wind is really going to be that big of an issue to make it more than seven times more expensive. At this point then, it's really a race between whether you think storing renewable energy will cost more than five times as much as generating it. A fusion sceptic would certainly argue that the amount of progress you need to assume in energy storage for renewables and storage to win is far far less than the amount of progress that fusion would need to make to become economically competitive. And I think such a sceptic may well be right. Such a sceptic might say that we already have the only fusion reactor that we'll need, that it works for free, requires no maintenance, And rises conveniently for us every morning in the east. Again when you look at the economics of fusion and the still existing engineering problems that need to be resolved, and we do not know if these will be resolved, it can seem like the sceptics are right. And some of those real sceptics would argue that eta is not so much a viable route towards power generation that will solve all of our future energy problems, as it is a rather expensive and pretty well-funded plasma physics experiment more of a large hadron collider for plasmas than anything else. So after all of this time detailing the marvellous and fascinating history of efforts to put the sun in a bottle, efforts towards nuclear fusion, I thought it would be good to give a countervailing perspective and pour a whole bunch of, if not cold water, then cold liquid lithium onto the flames. It would be terribly unromantic if this great scientific odyssey, these decades of striving and ingenuity, The sheer magnificence of mimicking the nuclear process that allowed the atoms that make us up to be formed. Wouldn't it be so unromantic if we managed to harness this, only to turn out for it to be ruined by something as mundane as money? But sometimes it seems like the world we live in isn't all that romantic. Fusion may work. Fusion may even, given a certain set of assumptions, be necessary. And if ETA works and the price falls or China pulls off a miracle or the little, dreamy-eyed, ambitious startups find a way to make smaller fusion reactors, or humanity turns out to be really rubbish at storing energy, then it might still be our saving grace. But let's continue along our starry-eyed quest to put stars in bottles with a slight note of caution. Anyone who tells you that fusion energy will be 100% limitless, clean, or safe, or that it will eventually go and dominate our energy mix, doesn't quite know the full story. And anyone who has the temerity to call it free, or even cheap given what we know so far, should probably be stapled to the reactor wall. But, as the late great Eliot Smith suggested, perhaps a distorted reality is now a necessity to be free. So, armed with our newfound cynicism and a sneaking suspicion that maybe the whole damned insane enterprise is really doomed after all, we'll continue the journey through the twists and turns in the history of nuclear fusion, From the good, to the bad, to the downright insane. After all, perhaps this was all far too cynical about the prospects for commercial fusion to power your home. Maybe making a miniature sun to boil the kettle is not too fanciful a prospect. And isn't it still a beautiful story all the same? Reaching out to the edges of human endeavour. Understanding the fundamental laws of a state of matter. Mimicking the process that fuels the world, fuels the universe with all of its energy. If we don't have dreams, my dears, then what can we really say that we do have? Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form, where you can send in any comments, questions, concerns. Maybe you're feeling a bit miserable after the Buzzkill episode. I'll console you. It'll be alright. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at PhysicsPod. Contact us on Facebook at the Physical Attraction page. You can donate to the show via the PayPal link or the Patreon link on the website, where you'll also be able to purchase old bonus episodes as a thank you for helping support us financially. But as ever, the best thing you can do is tell as many people as you know to listen to the show as possible. And if you do that in the form of an iTunes review, so much the better. Until next time then, take care.